welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 386, God's Messenger. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Samantha, Deborah, and Allison for signing up already. William had secured his promises. Each baron and lesser noble of Normandy had sworn to serve him faithfully and take part in his invasion of England. And William also made sure that the nerds wrote down every single oath on paper. Because William wasn't a trusting man, even at the best of times. Because he had no reason to be. And given how these promises weren't exactly given freely, well, he had best keep a record. And the fact that he remembered to get these oaths for ships and men written down, but for some reason had just forgotten to get somebody to write down that the King of England had promised him the English crown, is a big reason why nobody, including his own nobles, really believed that that promise actually happened. But whatever. William had the oaths he required, and Normandy was bound to answer his call to war, even when that war would take place across the sea. But as for the other nobles and knights and warriors of continental Europe, well, no one else really seemed all that interested. Except Eustace, of course, possibly because he thought he could snag the crown for himself. But as a consequence, unless something serious changed with all this, this invasion was doomed to fail. So William, probably at Bishop Lamfranc's suggestion, decided to call in the big guns. Rome. Having failed to get enough people to sign on to this invasion, it had become clear that this was a problem that was more than the Duke could handle. It was a problem so large that they needed to go straight to the boss, to the granddaddy of spiritual power, they needed to take this directly before the Pope. A man so incredibly powerful that he would soon be declared infallible. You know, at least on certain issues. I mean, if he picked the wrong horse at the track, it wasn't because that horse was a scion of Lucifer. For things like that, the Pope was just like any other dude. But on matters of faith and morality, it would soon be declared that he would be infallible. And actually, about a decade later, the church, under Pope Gregory VII, would go so far as to release a series of dictates that, among other things, declared that the Roman Catholic Church has, quote, never erred, nor will it err to all eternity, end quote. And as far as bold claims go, that one is right up there. And that developing view within the church is incredibly important for our story because the church was at a pivotal moment in its history, just as the Norman delegation entered Rome. Only a few short decades before, the church had basically been in complete shambles. Corruption was rampant, bribery was commonplace, scandals were happening so fast and furious that it was hard to even keep up with the latest outrage of the day. You know, stuff that is completely hard to relate to right now. But the church was an utter mess at this point. And as for the popes themselves, well, their lives were suspiciously short. And this all led to a crescendo in the year 1046, where there were no less than three popes. 
Not successively. There were three popes in 1046 at the same time, and all of them were claiming that they were the one true pope. Things had completely come off the rails. And in response to this, Emperor Henry III of the Holy Roman Empire had enough. So he saddled up, marched on Rome, and turfed out all three popes. Then he stepped up and said that he would decide who'd run the church and declared that it would be an entirely new pope that he selected, Clement II. Now, technically, the Council of Sutri was responsible for the elevation of Clement, but it was clear to everyone that it was really Emperor Henry who was running the show here. And it was particularly clear to Pope Gregory VII, that guy who declared that the Catholic Church had never erred and would never err. And incidentally, he would also go on to declare, once he was the Pope, that no one could judge a Pope. Pope Gregory VII was a whole thing. But when this all went down and Emperor Henry III selected a Pope, Pope Gregory was there. Though at this point, he wasn't Pope Gregory. He was known as Cardinal Hildebrand. And he was watching this whole fiasco with the three popes. And when some random emperor came in to tell the church how to do their jobs, he seethed. This was outrageous. And for Gregory, then Hildebrand, the scandals, the corruption, the short papal lives, all of that was evidence of how desperately the church needed to be reformed. And the fact that the Roman nobility and occasionally emperors were selecting popes, well, for Hildebrand, that sat at the crux of much of what was plaguing the church. Hildebrand believed that people outside of ecclesiastical orders had no business in telling the church how to handle its affairs. Popes should be selected by people like himself, by cardinals. And so Hildebrand worked tirelessly to popularize this view and to position himself and his allies in a place where they could actually make these changes happen. Thirteen years later, the emperor's hand-picked man, Pope Clement II, died, and a new pope was selected. He was selected by the Roman nobility, as it had generally been done for generations. And this was Pope Nicholas II. And Pope Nicholas II agreed with Hildebrand. He also wanted to reform the church, and so shortly after becoming Pope, he transferred the power of selecting the Pope away from the Roman aristocracy and declared that it was the exclusive power of the College of Cardinals. Now, this was a privilege that had been enjoyed by the Roman nobility for generations. As aristocrats, they saw this as their birthright. It was also something that provided them a tremendous amount of power. And Pope Nicholas had just taken it away from them. I'm sure it made Hildebrand really proud, but as for his neighbors in Rome, not so much. And only two years later, Pope Nicholas died after a suspiciously short tenure. But ironically, that cleared the way for the first pope to be selected by the College of Cardinals, Pope Alexander II, which meant that Hildebrand had done it. It had been 15 years since the fiasco of the three popes. But at last it was done. Popes would now be chosen by cardinals. However, change is hard. And the secular powers were so upset by all of this that the cardinals were forced to make the appointment at midnight at a different location because the prospect of elevating the new pope openly at the Basilica of St. Peter was believed to just be way too dangerous. 
And honestly, they were probably right. That aristocracy wasn't going quietly into the night, and the period that follows would be filled with schisms and rival popes, and actually, the Holy Roman Empire immediately declared their own rival pope to Alexander II. So these reforms were off to a hell of a start. But on the other hand, one of Hildebrand's major reforms had been instituted, and he wasn't done yet. Nobles picking popes was only one part of the problem. There's also the other problem in the sheer number of corrupt and immoral kings who were ruling out there. That was not a system that Hildebrand trusted. He felt it would be much better if, instead of having popes serving subject to royal approval, they reversed it, and kings served subject to papal approval. Give the pope a position above secular powers. Make the pope the supreme power in Europe. That was what Hildebrand was ultimately after. And I'm sure it's a complete coincidence that that was also an office that Hildebrand would soon occupy and then would declare the entire institution infallible. So that's what's going on with the church at this point. And interestingly, as luck would have it, Hildebrand was an ally of Duke William's close advisor, Bishop Lanfranc. And the two were also ideologically aligned. They worked closely together in the past, rooting out corruption and heresy. So functionally, Duke William had a man on the inside. And as for this new pope, Alexander II, well, he was also an ally of Hildebrand's. And he was also a former student of Bishop Lanfranc. So Duke William couldn't have asked for a more friendly audience than Pope Alexander and his inner circle. And that honestly was a really good thing. Because what he was asking for here was far more than simply the Pope's blessing. What the Norman delegation was seeking was no less than an adjudication of the validity of the royal succession of England. He wanted the Pope to look at the throne of England and how it had been transferred and say, no, actually, William has the right claim and I'm giving him my blessing to go get that crown. He was seeking an ecclesiastical trial that would judge King Harold to be an illegitimate king in the eyes of God. This was something that had never been done before. But it was exactly the sort of thing that Hildebrand thought the papacy should be doing. By accepting this delegation and hearing the matter, the papacy was setting the precedent that the church had the authority to verify or deny a king's right to rule. They were sending a powerful message that all are subject to the church and that the ultimate authority in who has power in Christendom was the Pope and that his power should go up to and including stripping monarchs of their crowns. Now, curiously, Lanfranc didn't actually attend this meeting with the Pope, despite their personal history. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps he felt that things were already a lock what with who the pontiff was and who had been influencing him all these years. So maybe Lanfranc felt his attentions were better placed elsewhere. It's possible. But whatever the reason, it was the Archdeacon of Lisieux who pled William's case before the Pope. And on the English side, answering for all these accusations was no one. No one was there pleading the case for King Harold Godwinson. And to be honest, 
It's unclear if anyone even notified England that Rome would be holding court over whether or not King Harold Godwinson was a right and proper king. It's entirely plausible that Normandy just, whoops, let it slip their minds to notify Harold. After all, it's a lot easier to plead a case when you don't have anyone arguing against you. But even if they did notify England, it really wouldn't be surprising if King Harold and the Witan ignored the notice entirely and didn't bother to send someone to defend his claim. Normandy going out there and saying they were headed to Rome to tattle to the Pope about English succession was honestly even crazier and more desperate than the initial threats of Project Seahorse. The Witan was who selected kings, not the Pope. On the matters of English kings, the Pope was just some guy. Certainly not worth the month or more of effort to send someone over there to argue their case. And even worse, by sending someone, that would just legitimize what was obviously another desperate and batshit move out of Normandy. If they went and sent someone, wouldn't they be saying essentially that the Pope did have the right to adjudicate something like this? So yeah, I don't know if the Normans did tell King Harold what they were up to, but if they did, the absence of an English delegation is not surprising. And so, the Normans, through the Archdeacon, pled their case before the papal court. And they did it completely uncontested. Now religiously, the arguments are difficult to comprehend. Because essentially, they are seeking to have the current King of England who was witnessed to have been appointed by King Edward on his deathbed and who was rightfully selected by the Witan to be declared a usurper. Then they were seeking a papal stamp of approval to declare William, an illegitimate son of Duke Robert of Normandy, the proper claimant to England's throne. And the only real claim that he had for this is a secret promise that no one could verify. I mean, the most favorable argument here for the Norman position was that Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury had been excommunicated for refusing to give up the See of Winchester. Which, you know, isn't great. But it's also a Stigand problem, not a Herald problem. Especially considering that Hildebrand and crew were all about how the church should exist independent from secular interference. So saying that it was Harold's fault that he didn't go and turf out an archbishop is kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth. And that's really their best argument. I mean, maybe they could claim that Stigan did Harold's consecration, which he didn't, by the way. But even then... That's pretty shaky for stripping a kingdom from their ruler and handing it over to just basically some guy. So taking the arguments at face value, this should have been the world's easiest case for Harold to win. But that's why I started this episode with that bit about papal history. Because this wasn't about religion. This was about power. The three most important people in the room, the Archdeacon, Cardinal Hildebrand, and Pope Alexander II all wanted the same thing, an expansion of papal authority. And the Norman delegation was offering something that they'd been seeking for years. If William became King of England, he would hold his position under the authority of the Pope. Now, it's clear that even if William had authorized that promise, he had absolutely no intention of honoring it. William was a Norman duke. 
and power wasn't something that Normans shared. It was something they acquired exclusively. But that promise of fealty and service under the Pope was the carrot. And then you have the stick. Do you remember how I mentioned that the aristocrats weren't pleased that a bunch of dusty cardinals were picking popes, you know, instead of them? Well, those schisms were tearing Italy apart. And that made it an attractive target for adventurers who were looking to seize some Italian lands. And the Normans, in particular, were taking an interest. So it's possible that in 1066, the papacy was getting a little nervous. And they might have been thinking that if they weren't able to make William a subject, they might be forced later on to recognize him as an overlord. So all in all, the case that the Normans presented was weak. But the deal that they were quietly proposing would have been too tempting to pass up. And in the end, the Pope didn't just bless William's endeavor. He provided the Normans with a papal banner and a sacred ring alleged to contain a relic from St. Peter himself so that they could carry that into battle. And that might seem like a small thing, but it isn't. Because the Pope wasn't just giving William some jewelry and a bit of cloth. What he was giving him was something much more powerful. And to see precisely what it was, we need to look ahead a little bit in history. You see, we have a later letter from Hildebrand, who by that point had become Pope Gregory VII. And in that letter, he references the support that he provided William for his invasion. And he speaks of attracting enormous criticism for sanctioning so much killing. Sanctioning. Now, we're 30 years from the First Crusade, but the implication in Pope Gregory's letter was that the Pope didn't just bless William's conquest. He also sanctioned the killing that would follow. Which means that the Norman invasion of England can be seen in terms of precedent and practice as a sort of proto-crusade. It lays down the ideological and legal framework through which Pope Urban II would later develop crusader culture and provide plenary indulgences to any who fought and killed while on crusade. Meaning that, thanks to this loophole, even though killing is strictly forbidden in the Ten Commandments, crusaders were being told that they could kill to their heart's delight while on crusade and still get to heaven. If anything, killing while on crusade was a good thing. And the implication in Gregory's letter is that William's invasion of England had some form of that sanctioned killing as well. And this religious development could account for why some records of this papal court indicate that, rather than simply rubber-stamping William's conquest, it was instead hotly debated, and those in attendance were split on the matter. After all, if the Pope really was sanctioning the killing that would take place during a conquest, that would be a significant evolution of papal authority. And some of those in attendance might have been seeing it for what it was the first confident step towards a period of history where the church drenches itself in blood. You can also see in this document that Pope Gregory was complaining about how the conquest ultimately went down. However, this letter was also sent long after the conquest, so it's impossible to know whether this was a reflection of changing views regarding the conquest or whether the papacy at the time was shocked by the scale of William's violence. 
There's also the possibility, though, that Pope Gregory was just upset that William failed to pay homage to Rome after the killing was done, especially considering the severe reputational hit that Gregory and others had taken for their support. So we don't know exactly what Cardinal Hildebrand and Pope Alexander had in mind when they cloaked William in papal authority. But whatever they were thinking, the world would never be the same. And the Pope legitimized William's plan in more ways than one. Because with his blessing, this invasion didn't look half as crazy as it did before. And suddenly, people were taking a second look at Project Seahorse. And then, at around this point, on the Tuesday after Easter, a great blazing fire appeared in the sky above. It silently moved across the heavens and then returned again and again and again. A giant star was dragging its burning trail across the world. And what the people were looking up at was Halley's Comet. But for the religious people of the 11th century, this wasn't just a big old chunk of ice hurtling through the vacuum of space in an elliptical orbit around the sun. This was a sign from God. And here's the funny thing about comets. You can see them all over the world. And yet every time they appear, a certain number of people see this as a sign for them. Personally. So you can imagine William looking up at this comet and imagining what sign God might have been sending him. And meanwhile, in Rome, monks and cardinals were looking up and imagining what message God might be sending them. And in England, the Witan, the king, the villagers, the monks, and everyone in between were also looking up at this comet. And many of them, too, were wondering what message God was sending them with this fearsome sign. The truth is, when global events are viewed as signs from God, you're going to have all manner of interpretations. And most of them are going to be pretty self-absorbed. But the appearance of the comet wasn't the only thing that was happening in April of 1066. Because it was also spring. And in the Isle of Wight, that meant it was time for sowing. It was a time of temperate weather where cooling breezes carried the rich scent of life as new leaves opened to the sun and fresh petals enticed nearby insects to spread pollen far and wide. After a long winter, the world was coming back to life, and it was there for all to see. But that wasn't all they were seeing. Just near the horizon was a fleet of foreign ships, and they were hurtling straight towards them. And that was odd, but it probably wasn't exactly cause for panic either. The people of the Isle of Wight were island dwellers. They were accustomed to seeing all manner of ships from their shores. But they probably got a little nervous when the ships reached landfall and hordes of heavily armed foreign sailors disembarked and were led by Tostig Godwinson. At that point, I'm guessing that Umfirth of Wight may have started wondering if that comet was a bad omen after all. And as for Tostig, I wouldn't be surprised if he also interpreted that comet as a sign. For him, or for his brother. Either way, though, he was now back in England with an army. And unfortunately, we don't know what Tostig intended when he brought an armed force to the Isle of Wight. 
but we do know that the island would have held meaning for him. It actually held a lot of family baggage. Fifteen years earlier, when Godwin and his sons were in exile and fighting to return to the Kingdom of England, they had led two separate fleets drawn from foreign lands, and they combined them right here at the Isle of Wight. Once reunited, they feasted and celebrated as a family and were welcomed by the people of the island. And it wasn't long before the House of Godwin was restored to power and their position in England was fully cemented. The unification of the house and their turn from exiles to the most powerful family in the kingdom had begun right here at the Isle of Wight, where Tostig had now brought his own foreign fleet, just as his father and brothers had done a decade and a half earlier. So we can't know precisely why he chose this location, but at the same time, I can't help but wonder if he went to White because the people of that island had a history with the House of Godwin, and apparently a degree of loyalty that went beyond their fealty to their king. And when Tostig made his landfall, the people of the island did quickly gather food and money for him. But it wasn't in celebration. They weren't looking to feast and celebrate the return of the prodigal son. They were gathering a Danegeld. This money and this food would be his, but on one condition. He and his fleet had to leave these shores in peace as quickly as possible. The people of White didn't see Tostig as their rightful lord returning to liberate them. They saw him as a pirate. And, well, looking at them, it's not difficult to see why. And so, gathering up his ill-gotten goods... Tostig and his mercs reboarded their ships and set sail, and they headed towards other English ports that Tostig had known before. Now, it's not clear when he'd made that initial crossing, if he'd planned to become a pirate, or if this was just circumstance. I mean, given how easily he felt slighted and how extreme his responses tended to be to insults, it's not hard to imagine that getting rejected at the Isle of Wight was all the excuse Tostig needed to change tactics and punish the English for their loyalty to Harold. But even if he had crossed in hopes of becoming a hero of the people, in just a matter of days, Tostig was now ravaging his way across the English southern port cities. And for some people, I'm sure that the message of that comment had become crystal clear. Meanwhile, in London, Poor King Harold II was trying to work out what to do with this mess. At this point, he was fully aware of what was conspiring against him. And William of Poitiers tells us that King Harold actually had spies in Normandy. One was even caught by the Duke. So we can assume that by now, Harold knew that Duke William was going forward with his plan. And that he was building ships. A lot of ships. He also knew that, against all odds that lunatic was starting to get people to sign on to his crazy plan. And now, apparently, he even had papal approval for it. So Duke William's threats and absurd claims that he had more authority in England than the Witan did were no longer a laughing matter. This actually might happen. As such, King Harold was busy trying to work out how best to gather a fleet. Now, I'm sure some of you who are listening to this just paused and were wondering what the hell's going on. I mean, what about the royal fleet? Harold obviously has a fleet. This is England. 
I mean, ever since Alfred the Great, England had kept a wooden wall, you know, of one form or another. Well, here's the problem. King Edward had been keeping one of those other forms of the wooden wall. Among the many catastrophic failures of his long reign, one of them was that King Edward had allowed the royal fleet to wither and decay. According to records, it appears that the king wasn't that interested in paying money to maintain the fleet. And so the taxes that were previously levied to support the ships were instead allowed to lapse. And so when Harold acquired the crown and kingdom, it was without much protection at sea. He did have a few ships from his own personal fleet that he acquired as an earl. But as for a mighty royal fleet, not so much. Now, to be fair, most English kings didn't have a royal fleet that would look anything like you would imagine. I mean, we're not talking about massive ships of the line that were engaging in sea battles. Much of what the royal fleet did was transportation, since actually finding the enemy at sea and then engaging them was incredibly difficult. But that transportation could be very important if you needed to get your army somewhere quickly. And to do that, you needed to have a fleet that was ready to be called just as quickly. So even a small royal fleet, like the 15 ships that King Edward had at the middle of his reign, would have been useful in wartime because they could be quickly deployed. But those days were gone. And even that meager fleet that Edward had had been abandoned. And England's naval responsibilities had been handed off to a small confederation of port cities who promised that they would provide a fleet for the king in times of need for a set period of time. That period being 15 days a year. So yeah, King Edward f***ing privatized the Royal Navy and reduced it to literally a bunch of off-duty trading ships. And the holders of that new navy were making out like bandits. In exchange for their service of up to 15 days a year, these ports, which would later be referred to as sink ports, were granted expanded rights. Greatly expanded rights. This translated to a mostly free hand on the administration of justice, as well as an exemption from taxes and tolls, and a suite of elite-friendly property rights. Now, there were five of these ports, hence the name sink ports, which is an English pronunciation of the old French term for five harbors. And the five ports were Sandwich, Dover, Hythe, New Romney, and Hastings. And these ports were afforded a system of laissez-faire self-governance with essentially no need to worry about taxation or legal boundaries to their actions, all for the price of promising that their trading ships would sometimes spend a fortnight a year pretending to be a navy. So if you were Harold and you needed to call upon your uh, navy, well, you better make sure that it's the only time of the year that you need them. Because once those 15 days are up, for the rest of the year, you're on your own. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. The king could call upon them for longer service, but he also had to pay extra for that. And you better believe that their rates were going to go up through the roof during, what's that? delightful term that Uber uses? Surge pricing. These were traders. And what do you think? 
does the threat of a naval invasion where you're the only source of navy for the entire kingdom seem like a good time to institute surge pricing? I think so. And making matters worse was the fact that by granting these ports all those rights, the crown's ability to get them to fall into line for the good of the kingdom was woefully limited. So all in all, great plan, Eddie. Thanks for this. And looking at all of it from the perspective of the impending invasion, this policy was obviously madness. However, historians have pointed out that at the time that Edward set this policy into motion, maintaining a fleet, complete with a standing crew, was expensive. And so apparently, it was reasoned that it would be cheaper and better if they just provided a bunch of tax exemptions, deregulate the trading ports, and let business people and contractors handle governing and defense. And if it feels like you just switched to a contemporary news podcast, me too, guys. But you really are still listening to the British History Podcast. Old story, same shit. And it turns out that this plan was just as terrible of an idea a thousand years ago as it is today. And so that's how, by the end of King Edward's reign, 15 days of incredibly expensive trading ships with the possibility of expensive add-ons was what passed for an English navy. Which meant that King Harold Godwinson was scrambling. He had Duke William and the Pope threatening to invade. And now he also had his crazy brother raiding his way up the southern English coast and headed towards Kent. And the Chronicle tells us that Tostig, quote, did harm everywhere by the seacoast where he could land, as far as Sandwich, end quote. And there were a lot of wealthy English towns that were along that coast. But do you know what else was on that coast? Many of the ports that provided England's extremely part-time privatized navy. Romney, a sink port. Dover, a sink port. Sandwich, a sink port. And the Chronicle tells us that Tostic hit them all and more. What little protection the kingdom had was being hacked to pieces by Tostig's tantrum. And this was a threat that King Harold couldn't ignore. It had gone way too far. So the king summoned his Huskarls, and they marched as quickly as they could to Kent in hopes of heading off further damage. In Sandwich, news of the king's impending approach hovered over Tostig and his raiders like a storm. It was one thing to bully folks into giving you a Danegeld and occasionally fighting some poor Ferdsmen when they refused. But it was something else entirely to fight the king and his force of Huskarls. If they stayed in Sandwich, they were gonna die. And while I love a good sandwich as much as the next guy, no sandwich is worth dying over. Not even when it's city-sized. So Tostig enlisted any men who were willing to join his fleet. And then he press-ganged others who looked like they might be useful on a voyage. And they fled the port as fast as their oars and sails could take them. They had successfully evaded King Harold and his Huskarls. And if Tostig was just a raider, this would have been an incredibly successful venture. He had received tributes, he had stolen booty, he'd enlisted some sailors to replenish some of those he'd lost in the fighting, and he press-ganged others. You really couldn't ask for a better outcome for a fleet going a Viking. 
but Tostig wasn't going a Viking. Not really. This wasn't about getting enough money together so he could set himself up as a farmer. This was something much more personal. And so even though he could have easily sailed back across the channel and returned to the harbors of Flanders, where his wife and kids were waiting for him, Tostig took advantage of the fact that his brother was, at best, on horses, while his raiders, being at sea, were much faster. And so they raced north up the coast of England. And it wasn't long before they made landfall at the Humber. It was time to get some payback against those people who'd spurned him and led to his exile. And as Tostig and his forces disembarked in the borderlands between Northumbria and Mercia, I wonder if there are folks out there on the farm thinking, Oh, right. This must have been what that comet was about. And we're told that Tostig and his men savagely attacked the local population and, quote, slew many good men, end quote. Now, like many of Tostig's actions, this wasn't a particularly strategic move. Tostig had long feuded with the two brothers, Edwin of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria. And where had he just taken his fleet? The Humber, the central point between the earldoms that were governed by his two enemies, which meant he could be easily surrounded. And by attacking the public, Tostig was clearly goading the two brothers into a response. And that might make sense if you had a sound strategic position, superior numbers, and you only needed to draw your enemy out in order to win. But Tostig had none of those things. He had a fleet of Flemish pirates who were supported by whatever English sailors he could entice or press gang into service, and he was plopped in the borderlands between his two enemies. I mean, sure, he did have a sizable force, but it was a far cry from the full fur of Mercia and Northumbria. Furthermore, his men were probably already bloody from their previous raids. And as far as morale goes, rather than being eager to raid, as they would have been at the start of this venture, well now, after so long at sea, they were probably eager to return home and spend all that money they'd stolen. Furthermore, these men were basically pirates, and hanging around and giving two much more powerful earls the finger wasn't how pirates tended to work. Not even big pirate fleets. And that's because pirates tend to like two things. Easy money and the ability to keep breathing. And this plan had a low probability of providing them with either. So there were probably some grumblings in Tostig's army. But also, it was too late now. Tostig's actions had done what they were always going to do. Earls Morcar and Edwin, along with the forces of Mercia and Northumbria, had appeared on the horizon, and they were prepared to meet with this raiding fleet and their traitorous leader in battle. We're not given detailed battle descriptions, but this doesn't seem like it was much of a fight, and they quickly drove Tostig out of their lands. Furthermore, it looks like most of the pirates who survived the exchange had finally decided they had enough with this English would-be earl. Because when Tostig's fleet set sail, that fleet was actually gone. The longboats bristling with warriors? Gone. And now, apparently, he was only supported by enough men to crew about a dozen little fishing boats. Tostig had set out likely intending to repeat his father's victorious invasion. 
but now he was little more than set dressing for the deadliest catch. This had been a disaster. And at this point, you would expect him to return to Flanders, to his wife and kids. I mean, he'd done his best, but the gambit had failed. And any normal person would go back to his family and focus on the one thing that really matters in this world. Your loved ones. But let's be honest. Any normal person wouldn't have launched that fleet in the first place. Tostig wasn't normal. And so Tostig didn't go to Flanders. He didn't seek the comforting arms of his wife. He didn't return to be a father to his children. Tostig went to Scotland to the court of King Malcolm Bighead. He wasn't done yet. He could still win this. No, he would win this. I mean, why else would God send that comment? If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit. I had some Redditors laughing over the fact that I said that Reddit is lovely. Our section of Reddit is lovely. And you can find links to that community in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.